I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 24, The Dawn of Banking. Again, there is no exchange of interest because the landlord is not certain of the profit, but it is local commerce and fortune and the exchange of receipts, not contracts, of loan. Baldus de Ibaldis, Commentary on the Code of Justinian, on usury, mid-14th century. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Before we begin, I want to let you know that the next episode will be three weeks from now rather than two. The corporate profile of Bank of America on the website of the data analytics firm Global Data reads, Bank of America Corps is a bank and financial holding company that offers a range of banking products, wealth management services, and other related financial solutions through its subsidiaries. The portfolio of its offerings comprises deposit services, loans, credit and debit cards, Certificates of Deposits, and Investment Solutions. The company offers services such as working capital management, investment banking, wealth management, treasury, market making, financing, securities clearing, settlement, and custody services. It serves individuals, small and middle market businesses, institutional investors, and large corporations and governments. A far cry from the moneylenders of the 12th century who laid the foundation of our modern banking system. Yet our modern banks are just as susceptible to economic shockwaves, not unlike the defaulting on loans by an English monarch. Banking likely existed in some form before the 12th century, but the documentary evidence is sketchy and unreliable. Notorial records in Genoa give us the earliest evidence of the emergence of banking. Genoa possesses the earliest surviving notorial minute books from 1154 onwards. Several primary sources shed light on the banking activities of Genoa during this time. They mentioned the existence of cabinet, shops or stalls, where money changers operated, offering services such as currency exchange and lending. According to the records, money changers were designated as bancarius. This is due to the fact that they conducted their business behind a table and seated at a bench or a banco. It is from this that our words bank and banker 
are derived. By the end of the 12th century, the activities of the bancari extended beyond money changing and into banking proper. They formed partnerships, accepted deposits, extended credit, and dealt with foreign exchange. The banks had responsibilities, such as currency conversion, detecting counterfeit or prohibited coins, and overseeing circulation. The government imposed regulations, including keeping cash and records available for inspection and having guarantors responsible for outstanding debts up to a certain amount. In return, the government recognized entries in the banker's books as legally valid proof of transactions. In the 12th century, as Italian cities like Florence and Venice and Genoa flourished as trade centers, a need for more sophisticated financial services grew. In the burgeoning commercial activity of the northern Italian city-states, two innovations would appear that would lay the foundation of our modern banking system. One of the vestiges of the Roman Empire was a numerical system that was inadequate for doing anything more than adding and subtracting. And it was particularly ill-suited for commerce. This was nowhere as acute as in Pisa. Like many other city-states, Pisa had to contend with several forms of coinage in circulation. In their case, seven. A Pisan customs official, Guillermo Bonacci, was assigned a post in Bejaia, Algeria. His young son, Leonardo, accompanied him. It was here that the young Leonardo was exposed to Hindu-Arabic numerals. As he learned more, he realized that this numbering system was far superior to the Romans. We now know him as Fibonacci, the short form of Filius Bonacci, son of Bonacci. We also know him by the Fibonacci sequence, made famous by the novel The Da Vinci Code, in which each successive number is the sum of the previous two. 0 plus 1, 1, 1 plus 1, 2, 2 plus 1, 3, 3 plus 2, 5, and so on. But his most significant impact would be from his book Liber Abacai, the Book of Calculation. Published in 1200, it introduced Europe to the Hindu Arabic system the concept of zero, decimals, and fractions, all of which made calculations much easier. Fibonacci not only introduced the concepts, but also showed how they could be applied to commerce, to bookkeeping, to currency conversions, and the calculation of interest. The commercial centers of Italy, like Pisa, eagerly seized upon this new mathematics. One key offshoot of this was double-entry bookkeeping. The system of double-entry bookkeeping 
was first described in a book called, in English, Summary of Arithmetic, Geometry, Portions, and Proportionality. It was written by the Italian mathematician Luca Pacioli in 1494. Pacioli's work was based on earlier counting practices of the 13th century that were developed in Venice and Florence. However, it's important to note that the principles of double-entry bookkeeping were not entirely new. Some forms of double-entry bookkeeping had already been used by merchants in other parts of the world, such as the Arabs and in China. The fundamental concept behind double-entry bookkeeping is that every transaction has two equal and opposite effects. Each transaction is recorded in at least two different accounts. One is debited and another is credited by the same amount. This dual entry ensures the books remain balanced with debits equaling credits. Double entry bookkeeping brought several advantages to accounting practices. It provided a more systematic and accurate method of recording financial transactions, allowing for better tracking of assets, liabilities, and equity. It also facilitated the preparation of financial statements and the calculation of profit or loss. As Italy experienced significant economic growth, various financial instruments were developed to facilitate trade and commerce. One such instrument was the Bill of Exchange. A Bill of Exchange, also known as a Cambio, was a written document that served as a means of payment. The Bill of Exchange worked as an informal promissory note, whereby the issuer promised to pay a specified sum of money to a designated person at a future date. They were the forerunners of our bank checks. Bills of exchange provided several advantages to merchants in the 13th century. They facilitated trade by enabling the transfer of funds over long distances, reducing the risk associated with carrying large sums of money. For example, suppose a merchant from Florence wanted to buy English cloth from a Flemish merchant at one of the many medieval fairs. In that case, the former obtains a bill of exchange from a local moneylender, instructing his agent in Bruges to transfer an agreed-upon fee to the Flemish merchant's account. The Florentine merchant would then return to Florence with his cargo of expensive fabrics, and the Flemish merchant would return home carrying the bill of exchange with the instructions for the bank to complete the transfer. All this would be done in the local currencies. The bank's profit comes from the difference in exchange rates between the two cities. Essentially, the exchange rates are set higher in favor of the lender. Initially, merchants relied on each other by pooling commodities and engaging in borrowing or lending. Close relationships and mutual dependence led to agreements, combining credit 
and partnership. These contracts acted like modern-day joint stock companies. While managing finances was a significant concern for merchants, it was typically secondary to their commercial activities. However, some merchants, especially those in the interior cities such as Florence, gradually shifted a portion of their investments towards money lending. Their resources and connections enabled them to operate on a larger scale than other lenders. This small group of merchants, specializing in finance, became known as merchant bankers. Merchant bankers initially entered the finance industry by facilitating fund transfers through remittance, utilizing the bills of exchange. Their involvement in bill trading led to the development of a cohesive international exchange market. As their expertise grew, they expanded into lending and became the primary financiers of international trade. But an obstacle needed to be circumvented for the banking business to become profitable and respectable. This was the Catholic Church's ban on usury, defined as any interest rate above 5%. Through much of the medieval period, financial services were conducted by pawnbrokers. Like prostitutes, pawnbrokers were seen as a necessary but despised segment of society, occupying the lower strata of social classes. And this profession mainly fell to Jews, who were not bound by the church's restrictions on lending money. And this was the source of the worst stereotypes of Jews in this period. In medieval times, pawnbrokers offered short-term loans secured by collateral, such as personal possessions. They assessed the value of the items and provided loans based on that assessment. If borrowers failed to repay the loan within a specified period, pawnbrokers could sell the collateral to recover their money. On the other hand, money changers facilitated currency exchange between different regions, charging fees for their services. They ensured that people had the appropriate currency for their transactions. Money lenders provided long-term loans with interest, assessing, credit, assessing creditworthiness and determining loan terms. They were typically wealthy individuals who invested surplus funds, although high interest rates led to controversies and risks in money lending. Money lenders found various ways to navigate around the church's ban on usury. They often framed their financial transactions as contracts or commissions, rather than loans with interest. Instead of charging explicit interest, they would structure the agreement in a way that allowed them to profit indirectly. For example, they might purchase goods from borrowers at a lower price and then sell them back at a higher price, effectively earning a profit without explicitly charging interest. 
moneylenders would often impose fees and additional charges for their services beyond the principal amount of the loan, or sometimes enter into partnerships or investment arrangements with borrowers, where the lender would share in the profits or losses of the borrower's business. The interpretation and enforcement of usury laws varied across different regions and periods. This led to inconsistencies and loopholes that moneylenders could exploit. Additionally, some moneylenders could influence or manipulate local authorities or secure exemptions from usury laws, enabling them to operate without strict repercussions. At the beginning of the 14th century, Florence and Venice emerged as the leading banking centers. In Florence, one of the most prominent banking families was the Bardi. The Bardi family can be traced back to the 12th century when they were involved in various commercial activities in Florence. However, in the 14th century, the Bardi family rose to great prominence as one of the leading banking houses in Europe. By the early 14th century, the Bardi family established branches in many major European cities, including Barcelona, Avignon, London, Bruges, and others. Their extensive network allowed them to conduct international financial transactions and provided them with significant influence and power. The Bardi family reached the pinnacle of their success under the leadership of Bardi di Vernio and his brother Rodolfo. They were renowned for their expertise in finance, international trade, and lending money to monarchs and nobles. They were vital in financing the papacy and various European kingdoms, including England, France, and Naples. The Bardi family's influence extended beyond banking. They were patrons of the arts and culture, supporting renowned artists and thinkers of the time, such as Petrarch and Boccaccio. Their wealth and connections made them influential figures in Florentine society and politics. However, the Bardi's family fortunes worsened in the late 14th century. They suffered significant financial losses from their involvement in risky ventures, including loans to Edward III of England and King Robert of Naples. The outbreak of the Hundred Years' War and political instability in Italy further exacerbated their financial troubles. In 1345, King Edward III defaulted on his loan from the Bardi Bank of 900,000 florins. This precipitated a severe financial crisis, and the Bardi family could not meet its financial obligations. This led to their bankruptcy, resulting in the collapse of the family's banking empire. The Bardi family's downfall had far reaching consequences, causing a ripple effect in the European banking system. 
the bankruptcy of the Barty family sent shockwaves through the financial world, leading to a widespread loss of confidence in banking institutions. It triggered economic instability, particularly in Florence and other European cities where the Barty family had branches. The collapse of such a prominent banking house highlighted the risks inherent in the banking industry and created a climate of uncertainty. It also paved the way for the rise of other Florentine banking families, such as the Medici. In the next episode, we will explore the rise of the Medici, who would dominate Florentine politics and culture for nearly a century. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com, or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also support this podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash itakehistory. If you know anyone else, who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know, and thanks for listening.